If you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be in verses 36 to 46 this morning. Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. This morning, our text is somewhat like a breath before the plunge. The electricity and tension in the story has reached its fever pitch. And many of us are familiar with what comes with the rest of Matthew. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to get away with his disciples, go by himself, and pray, preparing himself for what will be his final acts before his crucifixion. The main idea of our text this morning, and therefore the main idea of our time together, is this, that facing the cross, Jesus puts his trust in the will of his Father through prayer. Facing the cross, Jesus puts his trust in the will of his Father through prayer. We're going to look at this through three themes this morning. We're going to see the Messiah's supplication. What does Jesus ask for? It's what supplication means, if you didn't know what that means. On some Sundays, you'll hear us say, would you pray a prayer of supplication with me? It just simply means that we're asking things of God. So we're going to look at what the Messiah's supplication is. What does Jesus ask for? Then we're going to see the disciples sleep. And lastly, we're going to see the Lamb's sacrifice. So the Messiah's supplication, the disciples sleep, and the Lamb's sacrifice. Let's look at the Messiah's supplication together. Verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is in pain. After he's had his last meal with his disciples, they make their way to the garden for the sake of prayer. And this, in and of itself, wouldn't have been a surprise to the disciples. We don't see this a ton in Matthew, but we know from the other gospel accounts that Jesus often would recuse himself from the crowds, take his disciples, and even leave his disciples to go and pray and commune with his Father in private. But what might have been surprising to the disciples is Jesus' own acknowledgement of his sorrow and his pain and his grief. Throughout Matthew, we get just a couple of brief glimpses into the emotional life of Jesus. He's described as having compassion on those he encounters. He even describes himself in Matthew 11 as being gentle and lowly of heart. But here, Jesus says something that might shock us. He's sorrowful, even unto death. In anticipation of the events on the horizon, Jesus is grieved Not just by the prospect of mere physical death. Many men in earth's history have faced death head on, without fear, without pain, without torment. But Jesus is tormented over this reality. See, this is more than just about the physical phenomenon of a heart-stopping beating within a chest. No, this, what Jesus is facing, is the eternity-defining event. This is more than just physical death. 
This is Jesus knowing that he is the lamb to be slain for the sins of the world. He knows he's about to face the unfiltered, unreserved, and all-consuming wrath of God on the cross. And this is the cup that he speaks of. Look again in verse 39. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. See, Jesus has been preparing for this moment his whole life, and now it's on his doorstep. We saw a couple weeks ago when Jesus is talking about his second return that in his humanity, there's some mystery here, but he doesn't know when he will return again. But this reality, he knows. The Father has revealed it to him. He knows, and he's already spoken of it. Back in Matthew chapter 20, we have this interaction between Jesus and the mom of two of the men who were just with him, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Remember, in Matthew chapter 20, their mom comes to him and he says, Jesus, would you allow one of my sons to sit on your right and one of my sons to sit on your left? And Jesus responds and he says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? Jesus knows what he's about to face. He knows what this cup represents. Throughout the scriptures, this cup is the image of God's wrath poured out on sin. God has a cup filled with holy anger against unrighteousness and wickedness in this world, and he will pour it out, rightly and justly. Shootings like what happened yesterday and what seem to be frequent will not go unpunished. God's wrath is full to the brim, and it will be poured out on all wickedness, and it will be good and it will be right. Psalm 75, 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. God's justice is full. His wrath is at the ready to be poured out on sin. And Jesus says, I'm going to drink that cup. Jesus facing the imminent prospects of bearing his father's wrath, of being cast away from his father's presence, is filled with grief. Sometimes we think of grief as an understandable response, right? Someone loses a house to a natural disaster. Someone loses their job in an unjustified manner. Someone loses a family member to an accident or a disease. And we're like, of course they're filled with grief. Why wouldn't they be filled with grief? That's so painful, that's so hard. But how often do we think of grief and sorrow as the right response? As something that is good and right? See, godly grief, godly sorrow is a deep, heartfelt acknowledgement that something is not how it should be. Godly grief is felt internally whenever there is something amiss. And Jesus is right to grieve. Jesus is exhibiting his own righteousness. Why? Because the son loves his father. Jesus has only ever enjoyed the pleasure of his father, and now he knows he's going to face his terrible wrath. Having only experienced the delight of God, now he's about to fill the anger of God. See, Jesus didn't just avoid sin. It wasn't just a pothole in the road that he went around. No, Jesus was filled with righteousness. This tells us that his sorrow and grief here is the holy response for what is about to happen. 
So brother and sister, are you filled with sorrow and grief this morning about something that is not right? Is something grieving you this morning because the hard providence of God has led you to some pit of suffering? Has something come upon your life that is not how it should be? See, I would be a terrible food critic. When I eat a meal and I try to relay my experience, my words just kind of fall short. Well, how was it? Oh, it was, it was good. It had, it had so many flavors. It had different elements and ingredients, and it was good. See, when I describe something like that, you have no clue what my experience was like. You can't taste it for yourself. But if you've had the food that I've had before, all I have to say is the name of that food. Now, this might be a risk because it's right before lunch on a Sunday morning. But maybe you've had the meat sweats at Jay's Barbecue. Some of you have, and you know. I don't even have to describe what's on it. You just know. And maybe you feel a little bit of meat sweats coming on because you're like, I want some of that. See, when you've experienced something, all you'd have to do is say a word and you know. Well, sometimes we have the same situation with our suffering. We try to describe, we try to put it in words, what we're feeling, what we're experiencing, and our words just fall short. We can't relay what's going on. But you talk to someone who has walked through that suffering, someone who has experienced that disease, someone who has experienced that loss or that pain, and all you have to do is say a word and they know. Friend, if you're experiencing that kind of sorrow and grief this morning, find solace in the suffering servant. Find comfort in the grief of Jesus. He can sympathize with you because he is acquainted with grief. This means that Jesus is not, not acquainted with suffering as though he can describe it from a textbook. No, he knows suffering and he knows your suffering. Tonight we're having our members meeting and we're going to sing a song called What a Friend We Have in Jesus. But here's one of the verses. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. So not just take it to the Lord, but follow Jesus' example in his grief. Take it to the Father in prayer. This is what Jesus does, right? Jesus experienced this turmoil and this grief. Something is not right. The Son is about to experience not the Father's pleasure, but the Father's wrath. And so what does he do? He goes to his Father. And throughout Jesus' life, this has been his chief means of communing with his Father while here on earth. And through the private prayers of Jesus, we see Jesus' personal delight in his Father. He loves his Father, so he goes to him often in prayer. And here, at his hour of greatest need, he takes his sorrow to his Father. He finds himself alone with God, and he falls on his face, and he prays. And I wonder if you notice that Jesus, in some sense, is praying a prayer he's already talked about. 
Go back to Matthew chapter 6 real quick. Jesus describing how we ought to pray. He first sets the setting. Tells them, don't pray in public with all sorts of words. Go to your Father who hears in secret and he will reward you in secret. This is what Jesus is doing. He's going by himself into the garden to pray. But then look in chapter 6 verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See, Jesus here describes how we ought to pray. And do you see the elements that Jesus instructs this crowd with in Jesus' own prayer? First, we see that Jesus, through his prayer, is connecting heaven and earth. I mean, that's what he prayed for in verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Go back, to our, go back to our text this morning. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus filled with this unimaginable sorrow. Sorrow that you and I cannot fathom. Grief beyond compare that affords him the right to sympathize with anyone in pain. And his response is to take these concerns to his Father. See, sometimes we think about our suffering as, or our grief or our sorrow, even our worry and anxiety as things we ought to deal with before coming to the Lord. But what does Peter instruct us to do? Cast all of your worries and anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. See, don't, we don't put those things away and then come to the Lord We raise them up to the Lord. We take them to him through prayer. And this is what Jesus is doing. Taking his sorrow and grief and lifting it to heaven for his Father. Ushering them to the heavenly Father in his place. Brother and sister, is there some sort of concern in your life? The answer to that question is yes, by the way. But are you raising that to your Father in prayer? Do your prayers, like Jesus, show that you know that your Father loves you? See, the Lord's Prayer is not addressed haphazardly. It's addressed to the Father. This image of care and concern and compassion and strength. It's addressed to the Father because Jesus knows that his Father loves him as a son. And just like Jesus, the strong hand of God that has ushered you into your pain is also the same gentle hand that will shepherd you through it. And Jesus not only prays in love of his Father, in the love of his Father, but he also prays out of love for his Father. This is why Jesus prays the prayer that he does. Not as I will, but as you will. Jesus wants to bring heaven to earth. He wants God's will done here as it is there. So much so that he willingly submits to the Father's will all the way to the cross. And Jesus here is not getting cold feet 
He's not unprepared for what's about to happen. And Jesus, throughout his ministry, has demonstrated this. Up in Matthew chapter 20, he's even told us that his goal, the reason for his coming, is not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knows why he's here. Jesus knows what needs to happen. Yet he still petitions his Father, would you accomplish your will? If there were another way to bring about the salvation of the world, yet there's not. Jesus, the heavenly man, remains heavenly minded, knowing that the will of his Father must come down to earth, even if it means in the form of his wrath first. So prayer... Jesus shows us is connecting heaven and earth. But we also see how Jesus tells us that prayer is the means by which we ward off temptation. Jesus prays that temptation would be warded off. I don't know that we think about this often enough, but did you know that the prayers of Jesus are not a facade? Could it be that we discount the prayers of Jesus because we don't actually believe he needs to pray? I mean, he's God for heaven's sake. Why would God need to pray? And Jesus is demonstrating that here. See, in Matthew 6, I think we can understand it. He's the the teacher from heaven instructing what it looks like to pray to heaven. So he gives it as instruction. But here, Jesus prays for himself. Surely this scene has meaning for us. I mean, in the providence of God, he's allowed Matthew to record it for us so that we would get a glimpse into this conversation that Jesus has with his father. But notice that Matthew goes to pains to tell us Jesus is by himself. He is not praying this prayer initially for the sake of the audience. He has left his disciples and Peter and James and John to go by himself to pray this prayer. In other words, we should not discount the humanity of Jesus for the sake of his divinity. We should not forget that Jesus was a man, and he did what all spirit-filled men should do. He depended on his Father through prayer. And he instructed his disciples to do the same. Look in verse 40 and 41. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, there's an internal, external reality that Jesus is showing us here. That there's a tendency to talk a big game and not follow through. More on that here in a minute as we look closer to the disciples. But look at how Jesus applies this in his own life. The flesh of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, was subject to to weakness, not in the sense that he lacked physical strength, not in the sense that he was internally tempted by errant desires that we have, but he was still a man. He was genuinely tempted. And thus Jesus Jesus prays that if the Father chooses not to accomplish his will by another means, that the true will of God would be accomplished. And so by his prayers... Jesus is preparing himself to face the red-hot wrath of God. And I wonder if you notice, there is nothing changed by Jesus' prayer. Jesus prays, and nothing from our perspective happens. 
His flesh was not different. It wasn't as though as now he was impervious to physical pain. The circumstances didn't change. Judas will show up in the next section, betray him, and he will be led to a sinner's cross. Jesus prays, and nothing changes. I think we often assume that prayer is a vehicle to change our setting, when prayer is actually a vehicle to exercise our faith in our suffering. To put it another way, prayer has more to do with the heart than the heat of the moment. Prayer often does not change our external circumstances, but stills our hearts for what we're about to face. And while there remains a mystery here in the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Incarnation, what is clear is that the Father cared for the Son through the prayers of the Son. There is no evident change from what we can see. Yet through prayer, by Jesus calling out, my Father, your will be done, he is then prepared to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the Messiah's supplication. This is Jesus' request. Lord, Father, would you accomplish your will? But now let's look at the disciples' sleep. Verse 40 again. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he said to his disciples, Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, in typical fashion, Jesus sets the perfect example of how we ought to do something, and the disciples set the perfect example of how we ought not to do something. He calls his disciples to come, and he brings these three further along, Peter, James, and John, and he commissions them to watch. Now, this watch is not the watch of a century, as though Jesus needs warning about the mob that's about to approach. No, this watching is related directly to the act of praying. It's similar It's the same language to the way Jesus describes our posture to his second coming. We're to watch, we're to be awake, we're to be ready. It's the same point. Jesus' watching here is the language of being prepared for what's about to come. Watch, prepare yourselves, because everything that I told you is about to happen. See, the watching here is an aspect of faith. You believe the words of Jesus... And so you prepare yourselves for the fulfillment of the words of Jesus. And as we discussed with Jesus himself, this watching and praying has a direct impact on their fight of temptation. See, Jesus comes and he prays, goes, finds his disciples. They're asleep. He wakes them, goes back and prays again, then goes, finds them asleep again, wakes them up, goes back and prays a third time. I think in a setting where Jesus himself feels like he needs to pray three times. The disciples ought to be perked up to something. But clearly, they're not interested. Jesus has told his disciples, we saw this last week, that they would surely fall away. And Peter, the boldest among them, denies it. The other disciples murmur in agreement. And here is their chance to prove Jesus wrong. 
All right, big shot. You say you're not going to deny me. Here's your time to prepare. Here's your time to steal your spine. All of the dominoes have been lined up. And from one kiss from Judas, they're going to begin to fall. So watch and pray. But Jesus, Jesus warns, and it's met by the weakness of Peter. He addresses Peter here, but I think he means to group them all in. See, Peter's often the representative of the other groups. And so we have Peter, and then you have the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, who are a little further along with, with Jesus. Now, think about these three for a minute. You have Peter, who's also known as the rock, and then you have the sons of Zebedee, James and John, also known as the sons of thunder. Right here, you have three big, bold, braggadocious type of men who are not afraid to say what's on their mind when it's on their mind. These three, even more than the other disciples, had spent so much time with Jesus. These three had seen Jesus glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. If there were ever committed disciples of Jesus here on these earth, it should have been these three. Yet Jesus still warns them. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. The spirit, meaning the will of man, his internal constitution, his resolve. Peter, James, John, your spirit's willing. I think you're genuine when you say you will not deny me. But I'm telling you that you will. See, it's like they walked up to the plate. They did the whole Babe Ruth. They pointed out to the outfield and hit it way out there. And then they strike out swinging. Jesus comes, he finds them sleeping. If you intend to stand firm under pressure for what is about to happen, now is the time to prepare. Now is the time to watch and pray. Jesus returns, finds them sleeping time and time again. And then he tells them, verse 45, sleep and take your rest later on. The time of preparation was over. The hour is at hand. There is no more time to watch and pray. Everything that I've told you is about to happen. I think we understand this in our own life, right? We don't really put in the work until the pressure's on. We don't really study for the test until the night before. We don't really put our effort into practice until it's almost game day. But isn't all the work supposed to be carried out there in the preparation? Right? What athlete is prepared for the game that does not practice? What student is prepared for the test that does not study? What disciple is prepared for suffering that does not pray? Here we are, in some sense, we're talking about preparation. We're talking about practice, a la Allen Iverson. Do you find yourself in relative peace? Is there a lack of overwhelming suffering in your life by God's grace? Friend, this is your chance to prepare. This is your chance to watch and pray. Jesus has promised that this life will be filled with trouble. Jesus has promised you that your life will be filled, in some instances, with unimaginable suffering. Are you preparing for it now? Are you heeding the words of Jesus to watch and to pray? Children and students at home, listen to me real quick. Maybe the lack of suffering in your life is because God has been kind and used your parents and the people around you to protect you. 
that will only last so long. Suffering will come even for you. So use the time you have at home under the care and protection of this church and your own parents to prepare for the suffering that you will surely face. Saints, have you suffered unimaginable loss? Would you use your experience to train the rest of us? Would you find someone younger than you? Would you find someone who has experienced less suffering than you and commit to pray for them? Commit to encourage them? Commit to use what the Lord has faithfully seen you through to prepare others to face that same kind of suffering? One of the ways that we can do this personally is we can work to memorize the Psalms. Jesus, here, when he's speaking of how sorrowful he is in verse 38, he's almost certainly quoting Psalm 42, which we just sang a rendition of that right before the sermon. Jesus here is responding to his suffering with the Psalms. Use the Psalms to give words to your suffering. Use the Psalms to give understanding to your pain. Psalm 42.5, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. So not just memorize the Psalms, but ingest good songs like we hear at Southside. Play them often. Sing them at family worship. Part of the reason that we sing good songs is because it's not always easy to recall verses that we have memorized to mind. But I think what you'll find when the suffering does hit, when you get that phone call, is that the songs that are rolling around in your mind and your heart will come back to mind. And God has been kind to give us good songs to sing, so in some sense they can be the soundtrack of our suffering. So utilize the tools at your hand. Another resource that I would commend to you, specifically in relation to the Psalms, is a group called The Corner Room. If you've got Spotify or Apple Music or whatever, look up The Corner Room. All they do is set Psalms and other, other scriptures to tunes that make them easy to memorize and to grab onto. Called The Corner Room. But use your relative peace now to prepare for the suffering that will surely come for you later. Heed Jesus' example. Watch and pray. Don't be like the disciples. Don't fall asleep. Lastly, let's look at the Lamb's submission. The Lamb's submission. Verse 45. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Silent as a lamb, Jesus willingly submits to his Father's will. The will of God being that the Son of Man be placed in the hands of sinners. Jesus asks, if there's another way, let this cup pass for me. And the answer that God gives to Jesus' prayer is no. But my will will be done. And Jesus is satisfied. Jesus is pleased. The cup is not passed. He intends Jesus to drink the whole thing. 
In the eternal divine plan of God, the lion becomes a lamb and is handed over to his enemies. In any good action story, there's always scenes of great escapes and near misses, but not here. Here, Jesus goes willingly. In submission to the plan of his father, Jesus lets himself be taken captive. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 53.10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. See, Jesus is being led willingly in the hands of murderous sinners. But Jesus is comforted because while he's in the hands of sinners, he knows he's firmly in the hand of his Father. Jesus is truly the obedient Son who purchases a people for God. Jesus knew he was right where he was supposed to be, and he was able to stand firm, even as we'll see next week how he's abandoned by everyone that he knows. Jesus allows himself to be captured. And here we see the strength of Jesus. See, strength is not always about doing everything to hold suffering back. But strength is relinquishing your rights for the sake of obedience. Look at verse 53 real quick. Peter has chopped off this man's ear. Classic Peter. Jesus says, put your sword back. And then notice what he says in verse 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus relinquishes his authority for you. Jesus could have saved himself. Jesus could have taken himself off the cross. He could have called down angels from heaven because that was his authority. But because of submission and because of love, Jesus was silent. Hebrews narrates this passage for us. Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Hebrews tells us that Jesus was heard because of his reverence. Jesus prostrated himself before the Father so that he could stand firm under persecution. And Hebrews tells us that his prayer, his supplication, his request was answered. Not from the execution, but from the tomb. See, Jesus was saved from death, but it was after the fact, so that you and I could be saved from death before it comes. Because Jesus drank the cup of wrath. This cup that he says, if there is another way, let it be done. But no, if this cannot pass, your will be done. Jesus went to the cross and drank that cup down to the dregs so that you might drink of his cup. Not the cup of wrath, but the cup of grace. Jesus drank of his Father so that we could drink of his blood. 
And because he willingly obeyed the will of God, we can have refuge, not just from our suffering, but for our souls. Jesus' prayer, while for himself and to prepare himself for what is about to happen, involves you. Because Jesus pursued the will of God, you can be found under the hand of God through grace, through faith in him. So if you're here this morning and you've never considered who Jesus is, would you hear that Jesus prayed so that he would accomplish God's will for your sake? He wanted his Father's glory, but he also wanted to ransom a people for God. Would you trust that this Jesus drank the cup that was reserved for you? You should have drank the cup of God's wrath, but Jesus drank it willingly for you because he loves you. Would you turn to him in faith?